Hello and welcome to the Paranormalist Podcast. As always, I am your host, Kenny Dadson. As I have been called... Don't shake your head, Patty. As I have been called by one of our patrons, I finally got a nickname and a little inside joke. Uh, she said, Kenny Dadson because of all the dad jokes. I think she nailed it. So I'm sure she did. I am here with Patty Wilson, the Paranormalist. Patty, how you doing? I'm doing just fine. How are you tonight? I don't know. There's a lot of that going around today. I'm too old. I, oh, wait, please. hold on. Wait, wait, hold on. I'm too young to feel this old. My hips acting up. And it's been on and off like an issue for years. And I, it's probably from like sitting at the computer or something. Mm -hmm. I also sleep in fetal, which is not good. So I got to figure something out. But I'm like an I'm I'm like old. And I'm only Hello? 32. Who are you talking to? <laughs> hey, I'm just saying. I still work a nine hour, 10 hour day. And I just did the most insane thing I've done in many a year. Which is? They, well, the um, the local town here asked me if I would consider doing a walking tour this October for them as a fundraiser because they've not gotten to have their fundraisers because of this stupid COVID crap. And um, they thought maybe we could make up some time by adding some extra stuff in the fall with the proviso that hopefully everything will be up and moving again. And um, I said, sure, if the, if the town fathers decide that that's what the route they want to go. And then they told me that they'd like me to do the tour three times each night, which means about a four mile walk. Okay. And that's crazy for me. I haven't walked it in like two years that tour once let alone three times a night so like i'm going to have to start really practicing so that i'll be able to do four miles while telling ghost stories in the dark in october on slippery leaves i think you should just get a segue get them to get you a segue so then i'd have the people chasing me and it would look really really dorky oh well <laughs> <laughs> come on guys keep up I mean, you don't need to actually talk until you get to the spot anyway, right? You don't talk until you get to the spot. Right. That's the misnomer. Because if you do, then you're walking, looking forward, and your voice projects that way, and they cannot hear you. So you stop, turn to face your audience, speak, kind of set them up that where we're headed next, and then walk with them up there, then turn and do it again. Well, you do a really good tour because yeah. otherwise it's is there's people who don't get to hear you. And I have people that I have friend, family or friends who stand in the very back and they let me know if they can't hear. Nice. Uh, you know, so that I know that everybody gets their money's worth. I, I don't want people to come to the tour and walk away feeling like they weren't treated well in some way. Yes. So segue. Get so one. <laughs> no it's better for me to walk it so or or if you it. can walk it walk it i mean that's good exercise i've thought i've thought about it and i thought well maybe we could just do the stories in the square so anybody that so once i know for sure we're doing it i'm going to start plugging the crap out of it but it's mostly because it's a charity event and i'm hoping that if there's folks that are within drivable distance they'll come and visit at least once throughout the couple weekends that we're going to do it and you know share our beautiful home town this is my beautiful beautiful town I love dearly and I love two towns my hometown where I was born and then this town that I've adopted whether they liked it or not <laughs> <laughs> they tried to kick you out numerous times but they were unsuccessful I can't do it 
So, and we might be doing some other stuff, maybe some stuff at the fort. And I know that, that if, if things work out, okay, maybe at the village as well. Okay. So we'll be, and it's all charity stuff. I, you know, it's to help keep the historical sites open and what have you and keep the town up and running, you know, for uh, special events and things that we cherish, we treasure here. This is a beautiful town, particularly at Christmas. It's amazingly beautiful at Christmas. We are now a travel podcast. We are right now, dude. I will plug the hell out of anything that has to do with my town. I love this town. And anything I can do to help them, I told him I would. Cool. So there you have it, everyone. If you're in the Pennsylvania area, you'll hear more or about Maryland, it. Or Maryland or West Virginia or Virginia. Or New York saying, or New Jersey. Maybe. Yeah. Or or if you're not that bad, of, but you don't mind a drive of about three and a half, four hours, Ohio. We're right along saying. the turnpike, so it's easy to get to, et cetera. <laughs> I'm just just saying, you know, the Springs is out here. You could come make a weekend out of it. I agree with all of that. Yep. It's beautiful. As the PA traveler, I See? agree. As the <laughs> official PA traveler. Yes. And if you're in Pennsylvania, I'm starting up my PA traveler podcast also. So I guess I'll plug myself also. Okay. Well, like I, said, <laughs> I, I mean, when we get to the point where I have an absolute time, date frames, all that crap, I will ask that we start plugging it because it's important to you know it's i do a lot of charity stuff whenever i get a chance to and this year they needed it so we're going to do it sweet all right well that is first order of business second order of business we have a new patron yes it is (laughs) you told me i'm sorry patty was was that put on or not i can't tell i know i'm really no i was enthusiastic i tell you what I'm no, I am. Do you realize that how an honor that how much of an honor that is? Seriously, I mean, all joking aside, I've been a writer a long time, and to this day, every time somebody plunks down 10, 15, whatever the book is, you know, whatever its price is for the book that they're buying of mine, I am so honored. I just want to like thank them a thousand times over. I want to say, you have no idea. I get it. I worked for a living my entire life, and you're willing to take, you know, 15, 20 dollars of your hard earned money. And give it to me, trusting me to give you a good book. And that's what these folks are doing. They're trusting us to give them good stories. They're trusting us to entertain them well and to educate and elucidate and what have you. So, no, I'm, I seriously am appreciative. I know. I'm, I'm totally I'm joking being, with you. I'm beating, I, the cat, I'm beating the cat's nose going, no, no, you can't walk on the keyboard the whole time I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the person you're thanking this evening is Christine Struck. Well, Christine, thank you. And to all of our patrons who've been there for so long, thank you as well. And to all of our future patrons or anyone considering it, we appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. There we go. Uh, All business aside, what are we talking about this evening? Missing people. Just unusual people. Mysterious people. Things that um, people just kind of pop up out of nowhere sometimes. Things like that. So... There's just, I just found a whole bunch of these stories that I have kept over the years that I've enjoyed and I thought I would share some of my favorites. Okay. So. What's first? Ah. Bella of the Witch Elm. Okay. What's second? No. We go one by one. I'm just kidding. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Bella of the Witch Elm. That's right. Because my brain only will function on one story at a time. Yes. Okay. Yes. So. Oh, so just so you know, it's W-Y-C-H, Witch Helm. And what it is, is it's a, it's a kind of an elm tree that kind of looks scraggly and old and blasted. And it's called a witch elm in England. Okay. Okay. Is so that how story, they spell witch or? 
I don't think that's how they spell the word witch, like in she's a wicked witch, but they right. call this a witch elm. It's probably old English for witch, but okay. yeah. But um, anyhow, the story takes place um, on April 18 of 1943. There's these four teenage boys. They're trespassing on Hagley Hall Estate, and the boys are hunting, basically poaching for food. 1940s would be, 1943 would be um, the World War II era. Um, obviously, England was struggling greatly. They were being bombed every night for months and months and months on end. Food was being rationed. It was really a rough time. So the boys were risking getting arrested to go out and, and poach. And to be honest with you, they're teenage boys. They thought it might be a lot of fun and exciting. And hopefully bring home a rabbit or something like that for their family to eat the next day. So as they're going through the area, um, these woods, they come across this blasted elm tree, this witch elm. And one of the boys starts goofing off climbing up it. He thinks that maybe there's a, a bird's nest or something in it. So he climbs up and he looks down and he realizes that the inside of the tree is completely blasted out, like it's rotted from the inside out. And all that's left is the shell and some branches that are still green. And he reaches down inside because he catches a gleam of white and he thinks, oh, that's eggs. And instead he comes up with the most grisly prize you could imagine. It's a skull. And onto the skull is clinging bits of pieces of skin and hair, long hair. And he turns it around. At first he thought he had an animal skull until um, he turned it around and then he realized it was a human skull. There were um, sharply protruding teeth, human teeth. Of course, the bits of flesh and um, hair that were still clinging to it. Well, he dropped he drops it back down into the tree and he's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, you can imagine what it would be like to see something like that. Right. So the boys are afraid to tell anybody because they are trespassing. They, they could get in trouble and they just swear each other to secrecy. But the one boy, his name is Tom Willits. Tom goes home. He's about 17 and his conscience gets the best of him. There's somebody out there in that tree and you know, they could be a victim of a murder. They could be a suicide victim. They could be anything. So he goes down and tells his parents who then call the police and the police go out to the woods. They find the skeleton. And the first thing they notice as they pull the skeleton out is that, um, her one hand is missing and indeed it is missing. They find the rest of her entire body. Um, but the hand, the hand is never found. Um, they find a cheap imitation gold ring. It's a, uh, they find shoes, um, about size five, five and a half. And they're kind of laying a little distance away, like in some brush. And they've obviously weathered significantly. And then they find a piece of taffeta fabric shoved into the mouth of the, of the skull, indicating that this woman had been gagged and possibly suffocated. So they take her to the, uh, to the coroner's office. They start contacting the dentist because she definitely has a weird overbite and what have you. And they think maybe somebody will recognize the description or has an imprint of the teeth or something. But none of the de local dentists have any clue. 
they they realize that she's a woman of about 35 years old. Through the autopsy, they find that she had light brown hair. Um, she stood flat, five foot tall. She had given birth to one child at some point because they could tell from the damage from the hips having been spread at one point. And the, the coroner believes that she's been dead for approximately 18 months. So um, the speculation begins, you know, um, was she murdered? What, who put her there? And what have you? The coroner's, the uh, medical examiner, excuse me, he writes in his report, this is an excellent place for concealment of a murder. I think it indicates local knowledge because they, they, they came to this estate and put it on in this tree that they must have had. To, I mean, that's kind of an odd thing. If you're trying to ditch a body and you don't know the area, you chuck it in the woods, but you don't, you know, look around for a hollow tree to drop it down as a general rule, unless you already know it exists. Right. Yeah. So, um, and like I said, they continue to look for, uh, for the dentist, a doctor, somebody who knows who she is and nothing. They actually really put a lot of energy into this. They check the shoes and they find out they're made by a company called Waterfoot Company in Lancashire. And they actually trace down every pair of this style of shoe that have been sold, except for six that were sold in a town about 11 miles away. And they can't trace them all down because it was at a, a market stall. So they really didn't have any record of who bought them. Okay. So, they I mean, they, they really went all out about it. So about six months after the body is found, that's when the mystery begins. Because there is, it, it was around Christmas time of 1943 when some people still were going out there to kind of look around and poke around and stuff like that. When they saw on um, the side of a house near the uh, old hill where the tree's at, there was this, this uh, writing in a chalk, and it said, Who put Lubella under down the witch elm? And now they had possibly a name, Luella, or Lubella, L-U-E-B-E-L-L-A, Lubella. And then over the several months, nobody ever sees this person, but it is the same handwriting, so they know it's the same person. Um messages start appearing on the house and on the tree and at different places around the site. And they eventually come down to the one that seems to get printed the most is who put Bella in the witch elm. And then, um, they stop for quite a while. And then in the late 1940s, they appear again, the messages, they start coming back again. It looks like similar hand by then. Of course, they don't have much to compare it to, but they still think it looks very similar to the original writing. And they saw several samples of that. So now comes the theories. The first theory is based on the hand that is missing. I spoke once, I think on the show about something called the hand of glory, which is usually, um, a murderer who's hung at the crossroads and they cut their left hand off and it's supposed to, and then dry it. And it's supposed to be magical, have magical properties. Mm -hmm. So, um, no less than, um, the anthropologist, Margaret Murray actually comes up with this theory. She thinks that the woman was part of a witch's coven and that she somehow upset them and that they, murdered her in a ritual and took her hand to make it a hand of glory. And um, now that might sound insane, but 
that did happen. I mean, there really were dried human hands. There's some in museums in England um, still to this day that they know were um, used as hands of glory. And not more than, I don't know, maybe 12 miles away, there's another place called Lower Quinton. And there, a man by the name of Charles Walton had been stabbed to death and pinned to the ground with his own pitchfork because they thought he was a witch. So there is, like, stories of witchcraft in that general area. Um, the coroner's office and the police poo-pooed this theory and said it's insane, it's fanciful, ridiculous. They said that the hand was missing because of animal deprivation, that animals went in and stole the the hand bones and scattered them, but only just that one hand, which makes to me a little less plausible. I mean, that sounds reasonable though. No, I mean, if if you're going to steal the hand, why didn't you steal bones off of other parts of the body, even the other hand? But it it looked as though the hand had been severed. Okay. And so their argument was just that the hand had been cut off, but, um, and the ring was still there. So we know the hand was there at some point. Because it wasn't found near the fir- the hand that existed. It was where the hand should have been for the other person. So that was one of the theories. Another theory that's popular is the German spy theory. So during World War II, we know that the um, German Germans were bombarding, you know, bomb ra- bombing and raiding all over England all the time. We also know they had spies who were in all kinds of, you know, almost every country, probably every country, to be honest. Um, there was a woman who came forward. Her name was Anna of Claverly. And um, she said she knew who Bella was, that she claimed that Bella was a member of a spy ring seeking information about a local munitions factory um, that the Luftwaffe, the uh, German SS soldiers, were wanting to target. And she said that this woman's husband, um, this woman's name was Una Mosip, and that she was um, the wife of a RAF pilot named Jacob, Jack, Jack Mosip, and that he actually was forced to witness his wife being killed when he found out that she was a spy. Okay, because he didn't know. According to her story. Well, um, there is a little bit of information that maybe at least part of the story is true. Jack Mosip um, was a real person. And he, a man by the name of Jack Mosip, died in St. George's Hospital uh, before Bella's body was discovered. So we do know that there was a man of that name that lived in the area and turned up at a hospital very badly injured and died. And then... Months and months later, the body, the skeletal remains of Bella turn up. So their name is, is Bella is, is takes from, is taken from the, the scrolled name on the, um, tree in the house and stuff around it, but nobody knows for sure. So according to the police, the best they can figure, they think that she might've been a prostitute, which I find interesting because they just kind of went right to it. Um, They said that on a, on a BBC broadcast in 2014, they claimed that they th- had solved it, that she was a prostitute that worked in that area, that she disappeared in 1941. And they said that there were a lot of gypsies who were camped out in that area during that period of time. She was probably one of them and killed by her own community for some infraction. 
And um, there's another theory that she might have been a gypsy, but that she was killed by um, a local American GI because we had to get that in there somehow, <laughs> you know, um, because there were no GIs in the theory. So anyhow, on and on and on it goes. And there really is not an answer for this. Nobody to this day knows who Bella really is. And that makes her one of the mysterious people because her story could be any of a hundred different things. This sounds like it could have been on Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know. But not it the new one, been. but you saw that there's a new one, right? I did. And I, was, I watched it and it's okay. But um, all of them. I watched uh, six or seven total. Oh, okay. So. I've, I've only watched like two so far. The first one. Um, I thought was really interesting. The one about the uh, gentleman who fell through the roof, fell through the roof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That one I thought was really interesting. Um, I can't say that I was as impressed with some of the others, some of the others just, and not that I don't wish their families to find their, their loved ones or any of that. Please don't misunderstand, but I just didn't think it held my imagination as well as the other ones did. Oh, I see. Um, um, yeah. I mean, there is a lot. I don't know if you've seen, like how many of those have dug up information just by being on that show? Because I think everybody's in that mindset that they want to help. You know, they that's why true crime documentaries are so big right now. Everybody wants to solve it right from their computer and their keyboard. You know what I mean? But uh, I guess the one guy's body is going to be exhumed and yeah, the like there's tons the, of stuff. The guy from the um, fell through the roof, his mm -hmm. body's getting exhumed. Yeah, it's just like when you think about when Unsolved Mysteries came out originally, like if you didn't, you know, videotape it, you if you didn't watch it live, like when were you going to see it to be able to try to help solve it? Right. But now it's like it's it's there instantly and you can instantly help out. But still, I'd like to say that the ones that were just on the television shows, Unsolved Mysteries, and um, there were a lot of other shows. What was the one with John Walsh? Um, where he hunted, uh, you know, criminals and stuff, and he showed their stories. Mm -hmm. um, those shows really did. What America's Most Wanted? Yeah, America's okay. Most Wanted. It, those shows really did garner a lot of attention and, and solve a lot of crimes. Yeah. Yeah, that's like one of those useful, you know, shows that are out there. In a lot of ways, because not only did they solve crimes, they brought up information to light. They they sometimes connected people together that had been lost to each other for many, many decades. Um, they were a place to vent some of the, the frustration. And in, a lot of times they were a last-ditch effort by families. And on some occasions, those last-ditch efforts paid off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it was really smart of them to resurrect it after all this time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I think I will say this one thing that was wise about it is they didn't try to put another host in front of it. They just tell the stories now. I would have been really disappointed had they done another host for the show because the gentleman who was the host for the show was just so good at it. Right. Will yeah. always be associated with it. And I'm glad they didn't try to just replace him like he didn't exist. Yeah, I like the new format also. So anyway, sorry, that was cutting okay. in, but... What is your second one? 
Oh, you want to know my second one? That's okay. Of, of Patty's Unsolved Mysteries. These, well, not, not, well, they are Unsolved Mysteries. They are. But I just thought they were interesting. There is um, a story about a gentleman. It's called Jer- um, Jerome of Sandy Cove. So let me tell you a little bit about this. Sandy Cove is in Nova Scotia. And um, in September of 1863, so that would have been the years of the American Civil War, in Nova Scotia, an eight-year-old boy was walking on a beach called Sandy Cove when he met a man who was there and he was kind of groggy and suffering he was suffering from cold and exposure and here's the the kicker he had no legs none but not only did he have no legs but his legs had been freshly amputated like they had not healed at all yet now in real realistically my mother had her leg amputated and i will tell you even with all our, our antibiotics and all the hospital treatment she had it took about nine months for her legs to heal but these were fresh enough that the wounds hadn't covered over at all nine months jeez. yeah it was horrendous nine months and then after that there was a lot of pain and you couldn't bump them and it took two and a half years for her legs to heal to the point where she could touch them without it hurting oh wow so anyhow, this little boy gets help for this man, um, and he takes they, his family comes and gathers this guy up. He's obviously in really bad distress. He's going to die if he's not given some aid because of exposure. So they take him to their village, their home in their village, which is called Digby Neck, and then they find out he doesn't speak English. In fact, he, he doesn't seem to speak any real language. So um, they don't have anybody there that can speak whatever it is he's speaking and they try. So they, um, they take care of him for a little while. They, they try to, um, to help him. A doctor's called because the wounds are fresh. And the doctor says, whoever took his knee, his legs off was a skilled surgeon because he did a phenomenal job. They weren't literally hacked off. They were skillfully removed. And um, for months and months, this family takes care of this this old, this man, and eventually, um, they're told, you know, maybe you should talk to the Catholic priests. They're 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 a Protestant family, so they make um, they make arrangements to go find to this Catholic church and talk to this priest. And the man, some people in some of the some of the stories say he looked like he was from the Mediterranean the Mediterranean area. So he was darker skinned and what have you. Um, the story I had read originally did not say that, but some of the subsequent places I found the story did at any rate. Um, they contact the Catholic church who say, yeah, we will take him at the Acadian community at Metagon, which is not so far away. So they take him to, um, this community where these monks are going to take care of him. And there there's a monk who is named Jean Nicola and Jean is a French and he speaks Italian, Spanish, Latin, you know, he has multiple languages and still nobody can figure out what this guy is speaking. Nobody ever does figure out what this guy's speaking, this language. Um, they kept him for a while and then another family end up taking him in and Jerome lives with them for quite a while. And during that period of time, he ends up getting um, what we would call assistance today. It was like two bucks a, a week back then okay. to help pay his bills. Okay. Which, you know, their bills were a lot cheaper back then. What year was this, you said? And then in the 18, 
1860s is when it started. 1863 is when it starts. And then okay. it moves forward over the course of time. So we're looking probably at the 1880s, 1890s now. And um, so this guy ends up at this other this other house um, after the priests move away from the area. And he doesn't want to leave. And this one family takes him in. And he he is cared for for them by them for over seven years. And during that period of time, he watches their, their little girl, uh, Juliet grow up and she's very, very fond of him and he of her. Is he learning to speak the language? They throughout do not. This? No, they, oh. they say that he never spoke any language. He only grunted, growled and made his own sounds, but he never spoke any discernible language. Okay. Um, when Juliet died of a childhood illness, the family moved out of the area and he went to St. Alfonso and I'll say that at St. Alphonse, um, he stayed there the rest of his life where he was also cared for by the monks at that place as well. So this is a mystery to this day. Nobody has the faintest clue who this man was, where he came from, how he got there. He had the, the capability of speaking. Um, and there's actually a photograph, a photograph of this man. So it's interesting because, um, he it's just a mystery nobody has any the faintest clue how this man would have ended up having um gotten there how he got his legs amputated why he couldn't speak um there are lots of theories they think that he was a sailor who was punished by um his legs being amputated um for attempting a mutiny there's another story that he was mutilated and um sent away by his family because he was the heir to a great fortune and they wanted to get rid of him um there is a, a book that's actually out about him and in the book the author claims that he was an immigrant from a nearby town who suffered gangrene and was dropped off at Sandy Cove because he had become too much of a burden and they were hoping he would just die and go away. But now how he came to that conclusion, he doesn't say. So I can't speak to that at all because I have no clue how he did it. Um, but that was the story that he posits in the uh, book he wrote. So it's an interesting story, but there is, you know, no, no clue as to who this man was, where he came from, what happened to him. He never in any way indicated through a drawing or anything else um, that he knew anything about who he had been at any point in his life. Hmm. It's hard to believe he didn't write anything down so someone of today could go, oh, that's whatever language, you know? Yeah, well, he, apparently he didn't write at all. Hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, like I said, and he could speak, he had a tongue, so he had the ability, but he never, he never chose to, he would grunt, he would speak these gibberish sounds, he would, um, growl, make different sounds, but he would never, and he never, like they guessed all kinds of things and tried to get some sort of a history on him and he would just shake his head and no. Hmm. Well, that's odd. I mean, is, is that, is that something that a mutiny pirate? Is that a punishment that they got? I'd have no clue. I, I mean, mean, I've I know I've heard of them being hung. I've heard of their hands being cut off, but they're for mutiny. I have no idea if they would cut their legs off. But even if they had cut his legs off, and his his tongue still worked, you'd think he could, you know, right? Say something about it. But he doesn't. He doesn't ever. He just kind of lives and 
they take care of him and feed him and make sure he gets to the bathroom. And, 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 and I would like to say a word of for the graciousness of these families and these priests who took him in. He lived the rest of his life off the largesse of other people who felt sorry for him, so sorry that they literally you know, moved him into their home and became his caregivers. Yeah, even though he couldn't speak or yeah. didn't speak. That's nice of them. Yeah, for sure. I think that speaks a lot to the human um, psyche and the human spirit at its best. Yeah, agreed. We've been seeing a lot of the worst, but I think we should remember that people at their best can be exceedingly beautiful. Absolutely. So so another one that I would like to talk about, he's known um, in the United States, he's from the United States, and he's known as John Doe 24. And this took place in um, the fall of, two, of 1945. A deaf teenager was found wandering the streets of Jacksonville, Illinois. He was not able to sign. He could not communicate in any way, except he could write the word Lewis. That was it. When they asked him what his name was, he would write the word Lewis. Um, they tried to find a family. They advertised. They um, did everything they could. But because he didn't fit in any of the slots in the system. So he wasn't an orphan child. He wasn't, um, you know, this or that. They decided that a judge stepped in and um, decided that he must be, and I hate to say this because it's so horrible and so prejudiced, but if you couldn't speak or hear in the, in the 1800s and 1900s, they often thought you were stupid mm -hmm. or mentally ill. So the judge steps in and he, he decides that he's going to sentence him to a mental health facility for his own good. So they put him in a, in a mental health facility. Um, and there um, he begets the name John Doe 24. I don't know why not Lewis 24 because. That's his name. That's his name, and he says it's his name, but when he's entered into the system, he's entered in as the 24th patient at the facility, and they list him as John Doe 24, and that seems to be what's stuck. Hmm. So um, without getting very graphic, because it's truly horrible what happened in mental health facilities in that time frame, right. he was abused for many years, and he certainly couldn't speak about it. Um, throughout the abuse and what have you, and the lack of nutrition and the diet the way it was at that time, he ended up with diabetes and lost his eye to the diabetes. He was transferred to um, nursing homes as he got older and his health began to fail. And But he was, every person that I read things about him that had, had known him wrote of him being cheerful and sweet, kind. He loved to dance. He, he couldn't hear the music but he could feel the music and he would dance in time to the vibrations and the beat um he was happy all the time and they advertised from time to time people would you know do a newspaper article about him um ask if anybody had a relative in the distant past who had disappeared who might fit the bill his picture graced newspapers from time to time and nobody ever came around and looked for him. Now, just so that this doesn't sound like it's a story from way long ago, he didn't die all that long ago. 1993 is when he died in Peoria in a nursing home. So not in that facility? He died. No, he died in. No, he was passed on to a couple nursing homes as he got older. And he ended up in a nursing home in Peoria where he ended up dying. Um, nobody has ever 
figured out who he was, how he got where he was. It was almost as though somebody had just brought him to town and left him. Hmm. He had no clue. He couldn't say or, you know, explain anything. And the only word he could write was his name, his first name or last name, whatever it was. Now, of course, he didn't know a whole lot of people except for staff at the facilities he was in. So, um, but he was buried. But at the, interestingly enough, local, a lot of local people showed up for his funeral. But there was a sad comment in one of the newspaper articles. It said that um, at his graveyard service, the crowd stood there. But when someone stood up and said, would anybody like to say something about John? Everyone hung their heads. Nobody did. So um, I just thought that uh, it was a really cool story. And I actually came about finding out about it because I'm a fan of Mary Chapin Carpenter, the musician. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a song called John Doe Number 24 in memory of him. Oh, really? Yes. That's cool. So that's how I, I keyed the song in to find it one day and um, instead got an article. And I'm like, seriously? So that's what got me started on the storyline. So why did she write it? It what, just touched did she her. know him or just, no, okay. she just heard the story and it caught her attention. And, um, she was really touched by, you know, his story. So she decided to write this a song in memory of him to commemorate his life so that someone would, some way he would not fall from, um, from the universe, you know? Mm hmm. I mean, that's good that he ended up where he ended up. Sounds like he had a relatively peaceful end to his life after all the horrific stuff. Yes. And, um, you know, and, and there were a lot of people in the town who came to his funeral so he wouldn't be buried alone. But unfortunately, nobody knew anything about him. So nobody could say anything other than that he loved to dance. Mm -hmm. And he was always happy no matter what. I mean... There can't be better words than that, <laughs> really, at someone's yeah. funeral. So that's a good thing. Well, that's a good story. I, I liked the story a lot. I really did. I thought it was a really cool story. And and I assume no one along the way even attempted to teach him sign language. I do not know if he just couldn't catch on to it mm -hmm. or if they never thought to do it. I'm sure. I know that in the 1930s, sign language was really big was a really big deal you know that that there were that were academies from the 1800s on where they taught it and um facilities i know um laura ingalls wilder's sister mary was sent to an academy where she learned sign language and she learned how to write without sight you know, like on a paper mm -hmm. and all kinds of skills she could sew a fine stitch she could write the most beautiful, well-ruled letters because she would write using a ruler as her guide. And so that was the most beautiful uh, penmanship you could possibly imagine. And they, they taught a lot of life skills at these facilities. So when you see the TV show, there's, you know, there's a part of it that's kind of fictional because it's a TV show. Right. But the gist of it, the bones of it, it really is true. And she did go blind as a young lady and she did end up going to this academy. She did not, however, get married as that they portray her in the show. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I've, I've actually heard this from a bunch of people. They said that 
man, I wish in high school they would have offered sign language as one of the languages instead of like French or something that you'll probably never, ever use, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, obviously, Spanish would be a good one, which is what I took. But, you know, I think sign language would be it's like the universal language, right? Mm hmm. So I don't know a single person that took French that actually lived in Paris or anything like that. But a lot of them wish they could have. So change that high schools. Actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It really does. At least a rudimentary course where you could at least spell out a few words. Right. So you could communicate at least a little bit. Right. Yeah. I wish I could go back and it, well, if they would have offered it, I would have taken it if I could go back now, you know? Yeah. So, well, that's a cool story. I thought it was. So um, I'm going to tell a story and this story actually came to me. Um, I'm going to tell the story that led me to this story first and then I'll tell this story. Is this going to um, be like story inception? Is that what this is? Sort of. <laughs> uh, I, there's a, a wonderful movie called The Last of His Tribe, and it's um, based on a true story. And I think it was in 1906 in, in California, in a barn, this um, farmer finds this Indian, Native American, and he's in pretty rough shape, um, wearing tattered clothing that's mostly hides, and he looks very aboriginal. Um, he speaks no English whatsoever, none. Now, this is 19, 1906. And um, then he, call, he calls the police and tells the police, there's this guy, he's in my, you know, he's scared, he's in there, and I don't know what's going on with him, but, like, somebody better do something. And they come and they gather him up, and he makes the local papers and the gist of the story is that it turns out that he is the last of a native American tribe of Indians. And he came down out of these mountains looking for food. They figure that, um, whoever was with him, whatever last other person was with him had passed away. And so he didn't know what else to do. So he ended up trying to steal food out of this barn and got caught. And there was a scholar in the Northeast, um, who was fascinated with this particular tribe's dialect and what have you. He had heard scraps of it recorded and he had seen written, um, the written language written out phonetically. So he ends up coming out there and meeting this guy. And as soon as he starts to talk, the guy's head kind of comes up and he's like, he recognizes the sounds. And they, he ends up communicating and finding out that this is exactly the story that he, his mother had died. And when his mother died, he didn't know what to do. So he left the body and he came down looking for food and ended up that the guy, the museum guy, the guy that knew the language takes him back with him. And, and he ends up working at the, um, at the museum for the rest of his life. And they become friends. Um, in a very patriarchal way, like he, the other guy, the museum guy takes care of him, makes sure that he understands he doesn't get taken advantage of and stuff like that. And so um, it's, a, it's a good relationship. It's probably the primary relationship of his life. And this guy watches over him until he dies. 
And that's the story that kind of begets this story because when I was doing some, I love that story and the movie is phenomenal. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it's not a well-known movie for some reason, but it's phenomenal. The Last of His Tribe is the name of it. I highly recommend it. It's not a, a spooky movie. It's just a beautiful story of, of two people who end up caring greatly for each other and perseverance. The Last of His Tribe. Mm-hmm. Do you know who's in it? Um, the gentleman who played in MASH, I can't think of his name, Ogden Styers. David Ogden, Ogden Styers? Styers, yeah. Okay. And I John Voight, Graham yes. Greene. And it's a phenomenal movie. I highly, highly recommend it. It's got some great actors in it. Hey, it's got a 7.1 out of 10 on uh, IMDb, which is like really good. As far as IMDb goes. Well, I, I don't care what IMDb said one way or the other. <laughs> I will just tell you it is a kick-ass movie. I watch it every so often just because it's beautiful. Just pointing it out because when you have rating systems out of 10, usually people will be like, if they didn't like it, they'll just give it a one instead of a real rating. Yeah. And it always skews the ratings on IMDb. Oh, okay. So I wish they would do it out of five. But anyway, yeah. seven's really good. So I'm not so I'm not exaggerating. It no, is a check phenomenal it out. movie. It is a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, so anyhow, that was I was looking up some stuff on this particular story when I came across this story. And it stuck. It's called The Man of the Hole is um, what, how he's referred to. He's also referred to as Last Tribesman, which is why when I kicked in Last of His Tribe, I ended up with this story. So you go down rabbit holes, don't you? Every day, <laughs> all day long. And then I drag your ass with me. Yep. And you're welcome. Kicking and screaming sometimes, but that's okay. Oh, yes, definitely kicking and <laughs> screaming sometimes. But you're still welcome. Okay. Because I take you in all these interesting places. All right, take me to the man. The in... last tribesman? The man also... in the hole? What is it? The man of the hole. Of the hole, okay. Of the hole. He's also called the loneliest man on earth, which whenever I saw that, I was like, whoa, why would you call somebody that? That's sad. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So anyhow, he's, but the most common name I've seen is man of the hole. So here's the story. He was found in the Amazon rainforest in 1996 on a patch of ground that had been not been disturbed, but it was surrounded by cattle ranches. Um, the man speaks no language that they can recognize, but he does speak a language, but just nobody knows what the hell it is. But he uses words, particular words repeatedly for certain objects. So we know it's not just gibberish. And, um, they believe he might have been the last of an indigenous tribe of people from the rainforest. There's many different tribes. People make the mistake of thinking that like all Native Americans are the same, but they're not. They're entire nations. If you're Sioux, you're Sioux. If you're Blackfoot, you're Blackfoot. If you're Apache, you're Apache. If you're uh, Iroquois or Algonquin, you're your own nation. And so there are multiple nations of Indians within the United States. What are you? My, 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 my dad's people were Blackfoot. Blackfoot. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you want to plug them? Were they Pennsylvania based or? No, they were not. No. Okay. Actually, the story about how um, my family came to be here, my dad's my dad's family was German and Blackfoot. 
Okay. And my hair naturally is dark. Long story. It's just easier to keep the gray out of it this way. <laughs> and there's another story that goes with it, but I'll spare you all. Those if you want to see Patty's dark hair there, she was on some uh, travel channel specials back. In I the day. was a long time so, ago. Yeah. Yeah. Look it up on YouTube. And I, yeah. And I inherited my mom's Scotch Irish complexion, except I don't burn. I do tan. I tan really quick. Oh, okay. So I got like the best of both worlds. My my dad's beautiful dark eyes and all of that stuff. Um, but anyway, um, my dad's people were through um, people settling in the lands and what have you. They ended up up near Canada. And then um, during the the age, railroad age, the golden age of the railroad and what have you, um, my the um, we everybody knows about the Chinese building the railroads from the west and the Irish in the east and the African-American people in the south. Mm -hmm. But what people don't know is that there were Native American tribes who also worked the railroads. And um, they were called the ones that I encountered were called river encampments. Basically, they were taken off the reservation to be slave labor for the railroads. And the railroads paid the reservation a stipend for using them the only reason it wasn't the most horrendous thing on the planet is because if you could convince the railroad to utter to actually hire you outright mm -hmm. then you could leave the reservation and you know assimilate into the society and have a regular job like everybody else so my dad's people came from a river encampment down from near canada all the way down and ended up in the Black Machanan Valley in Pennsylvania, where my great-grandfather, I'm told, this is the story that's passed through my family, um, and I did check out parts of it with the historical societies, and I have found documents for the to document the marriages and things like that. I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah. And nerd. Ben's, no, just kidding. It's your I family. Call me a nerd. No, it's your family. I'm just my, kidding. My, actually, we did that because Ben was fascinated, my youngest son, and wanted to know his family genealogy. So we did some research. And I was blessed because a cousin of mine had already done it ahead of us. So she had a lot of the answers. Oh, okay. <laughs> saved me a lot of legwork. But anyway. I'm just joking about all this, Patty. Just so, so you know. So, anyhow, my great grandfather um, convinced a road boss on the railroad to hire him outright. And my family ended up staying in Pennsylvania. My grandfather worked for the railroad and my great grandfather. And then my father worked for the railroad for a while. If you so, want to hear more about that trains episode right, on, on the Patreon of last week, continue. I had, so, I thought I'd plug it. All right. That's fine. So anyhow, I just thought this was a fascinating story. So, um, I don't know why i don't know why this word what name and what language this word means this but this man's um other nickname was m-o-f-h which apparently means a hole in some um amazon native american or native language okay and so um it comes because every home he was in um the hat the houses were made out of he would make the houses out of straw thatch and giant leaves and then he would live in them for a while and move to another one he would build. And he would just keep doing this. But everyone that he abandoned, when they would go in to look at it, there would be this large hole that he had dug inside the house. And it, it took up most of the floor, but not all of it. And it was like the only thing they could come, they could... Uh, figure out is that maybe it was some sort of a trap for animals or it was a place for him to hide. Um, if he, you know, like from maybe something he had learned as a child to do, 
in in case they were raided or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up um, he had a, he would grow a garden. He grew um, you know like corn and pawpaw fruit and all kinds of vegetables and stuff. And he took care of himself. He lived in the wild the whole time. But local ranchers and stuff got to know him. Um, so he. Um, in 2007, Brazil's um, country, the government, um, did a protection for Native Americans and made it illegal to develop or trespass on um, land where Native Native people were living. So the um, the man of the holes land was cordoned off um, within 33 miles or outside of his territory, and um, he was granted a, con- a, a land right through the constitution to the land um, per Brazil's constitution. And uh, as of 2014, um, he was still alive and living there. However, he never did take kindly to people and he wasn't like he was very friendly. They said that if, um, he and at some point in time, he just decided he wasn't talking to anybody ever again. I don't know if somebody hurt him or did something to him, but um, the last person who tried to find him at two, in 2014 said, be careful, he'll fire fire arrows at you if you get too close. Jeez. So I just thought it was an interesting story, um, and it just kind of goes to show that we think that all these kind of things happened long ago, but as of six years ago, this guy was still alive. Hmm. Did you ever watch that guy called Mr... Tfue, T-F-U-E, on YouTube. No. He goes and he digs these gigantic holes and he creates these pole houses out of them. I've seen people do that kind of stuff, but and I find it fascinating. And they get like 15 million views. This one has 85 million views. Like, it, it's fascinating. It's so relaxing to watch if you ever get a chance. Just like I've watched people build like, a, you know, shelters and things right i've seen those too yeah it's just it might even be this guy but yeah he he digs these and makes these like palaces it's amazing anyway that's what who that guy sounds like almost i wonder if he has any like structures underneath in those holes or something i don't know but i just thought he was a fascinating character and i thought because he reminded me of my favorite one of my favorite movies which is the last of his tribe um i just wanted to share the story well, I hope no one gets too close and gets an arrow. Yeah. Just saying, don't go looking for him because he shoots people with arrows. All right. What else you got? Um, some people may have heard this story. I don't know. Have you ever heard of Casper um, Hauser? Nope. No. Just the friendly yes. ghost. Casper the friendly ghost. Nope. This is not the, the friendly ghost, my dear. This is actually um, a really interesting story. It was... Um, some people believe it was a hoax and some people don't. Some people believe it was the true story. So in 1828, there was a teenage boy found roaming the streets of Nuremberg, Germany. Um, he was helpless. He was confused. He was stopping people and trying to like, he wasn't really talking. He was just like, you know, what? I don't understand shaking his head and trying giving the air of confusion about him, if you will. When he could get somebody to stop and try to talk to him, he didn't talk. Instead, he had two letters and he took them out and gave them to them to read. And he must have been told at some point not to lose the letters no matter what, because he was very cautious to pick them back up or take them back. 
And the letters, basically, one of them said that was from his caretaker who'd raised him from infancy, tutored him in reading and writing and religion, but had never allowed him to take a step out of the house. Why? I don't know. And the other was supposedly from his mother saying that he was born on April the 30th of 1812, that his name was Caspar Hauser, and his father was a Calvaryman who had died. Um, the letters were in the same writing. And so whoever wrote the one letter wrote the other. And so eventually the guy, the boy was gathered up and taken to the home of a local uh, well-known gentleman. His name was Captain Von Wensling. And um, the only thing the boy would say was that he, um, his father was a Calvaryman and that he would say the word um, horse, horse. And he would say that over. And then he would also shout, don't know, don't know. Those were the only kind of things he could say. He only had a couple of words that he was fluent in. So um, he ended up being taken into the police custody as a vagrant. He was actually jailed in Nuremberg Castle. And um, there he, among the prisoners, there was somebody who taught him some to speak a little more. And he ended up saying that... Um, he had been in a telling people he had been in a dark cell with a wool blanket, two wooden horses and a toy dog. He was fed bread and water and he really did refuse to eat any food, but bread and water the entire time he was in the prison and other places he would end up being. And he absolutely hated meat. He couldn't understand why you would eat meat. Um, he said he never saw who had him, that they gave him bitter water sometimes, and then he would wake up. So I'm guessing the water was drugged. And um, when he'd wake up, his hair and his fingernails had been cut. He was absolutely obsessed with horses. He delighted in, um, you know, talking about them, looking at them. He actually, somebody made him a toy horse and he would pet it and coo to it and talk at, to it. Um, but the boy wasn't in bad physical shape. He could climb all the way to the top of the prison tower, which was 90 some steps. He didn't have any signs of rickets or malnourishment. So that really makes you wonder if he was raised in a dungeon and without any food, you know, like that. Um, he said he had been taught to walk by a man with a blackened face who taught him to say, I want to be a Calvaryman as my father was in an old Bavarian dialect, which was different than what he was speaking, what he had learned there in Germany. So this was a, a very old um, regional dialect. Um, but he didn't know what that meant, Calvaryman or any of that. He just had been taught to say it. Um, and then he said that the man brought him to town and dropped him, told, told him to sit down on the street and, and the sidewalk. And he just walked away and told him to stay. And so he did. Um, people were fascinated with this boy's story. The guess is that he was somewhere around 15 years old. Um, and so they would come to the jail. They would, um, you know, try to speak to him. The city's mayor even came to see him. They circulated that he was possibly one of the princes of the House of Baden. Um, he was eventually, after two months, released to a school teacher by the name of George Dahmer. 
and he would uh, take him home and begin to teach him writing, reading, you know, drawing and what have you. He was very skillful. He learned very, very quickly. Um, but then there was something odd started to happen. He, Hauser would suddenly just appear one day very badly injured. He was found um, one day in Dahmer's cellar with a head wound, and he said he was attacked by a man in a hood who said to him, you still have to, to, to die ere you leave the city of Nuremberg. Um, he claimed that the man who took him to Nuremberg was the man who spoke to him. Even though he didn't see his face, he recognized the voice. So, so he was told, you know, ere you leave the city of Nuremberg, meaning that if you leave the city of Nuremberg, you will die. Um, so he was moved from the school teacher's home to a municipal authority's home where he was considered to be safer. They were beginning to suspect somebody was attempting to kill this boy. So for about six months, he was safe there. And then one, um, one morning, early in the early morning hours, they heard a gunshot and rushed to Casper's bedroom. And he was laying there ble bleeding from a head wound. Um, he said he knocked the pistol from the wall. And it was a minor head wound. But they were afraid that maybe he had been... Um, it was another attempt on his life and that he was just afraid to say anything. So they again move him. Um, and then every time he goes to someplace, something happens and he gets kind of moved to another more well-to-do person's home for better protection. So eventually somebody wrote and said, Hauser is a smart scheming codger, a rogue and a good for nothing who ought to be killed. Um, and so this tide starts to turn for this boy. People start kind of wondering. So in 1833, five days after he had a huge fight with another school teacher, the boy was found to, um, to be a liar. They said he, they said he showed up with a chest wound and, um, he said he had been lured to a, a local, uh, garden, which is like a park by a stranger who gave him a bag. And when he it had candy in it and then tried to stab him when he reached for the bag, Police found the boy. Um, they came across a little purple purse with the letter um, in an old-fashioned dialect of German. And it said, um, there was a, a note in it, and it said, hang on, I'll make sure I read it to you because I know I'm not going to remember all of it. So let me find it here. Hauser will be able to tell you quite precisely how I look and from where I am. To save Hauser the effort, I want to tell you myself from where I come. I come, and there's some letters, I don't know what they mean. I come from, from, and that's twice, and then the letters. And then it says the Bavarian border. Again, some letters I don't know. On the river, and there's some more letters. I will even tell you the name M-L-O. Um, now people are beginning to suspect he's doing it, that he's creating the scenario. And... Um, they start to accuse him of self-inflicted wounds and things like that. The f letter was folded and it was folded in a way that Hauser often folded paper, like a little weird triangle, like kind of like those footballs we used to, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. The errors in the letter were typical of grammatical errors. His teachers noticed in his writing. So, um, 
everybody just kind of thought he was spoofing them. And so they decided not to do anything. And three days later, he turns up dead. He was buried in Ansbach with Here Lies Kasper Hauser, an enigma of his time, mysterious, mysterious is his death. And nobody to this day knows where he came from, if he was one of the lost princes of Baden, um, and nothing like that. But I do know that in 1996, there was um, a DNA test given against a blood sample of his and living members of the house of Baden and he did not, it wasn't their DNA. So they don't think that was him, but, um, it's a fascinating story. And if it was all self-inflicted, that doesn't explain the huge chest wound that ends up happening to him to kill him. Yeah. Why would he go through all that trouble to do all that stuff? And, you know, and, and it's, it's just a fascinating story. So he was either one of the biggest hoaxers and he gave any, and he gave up or somebody murdered him. Nobody knows. He's a mystery. He's a mystery wrapped inside an enigma and has been from the beginning and probably will never be solved. Huh. That's interesting. The letter part in the beginning, I can relate to that. I used to have a card that said I had epilepsy in my wallet just in case. <laughs> and I used to have one of those bracelet things too. Oh, okay. Which I highly recommend if anyone has any sort of issue like that. I recommend you get you get yourself one of those. But that's just a side note. Uh, as far as the guy goes, I mean, that's really, it's just strange that, you know, like it's a minor head wound, right? It's a minor uh, chest wound. Like, was he doing that to himself to keep himself around? Like he knew these people were after him. So he was fabricating things to make sure he didn't get kicked out on the streets or something. They have no clue. They did find a little purple purse that had candy, like little bits of candy in it and this note tucked in it. Um, nobody knows. Hmm. But it does seem that he took the joke or the, the con way too far if he committed suicide by wounding himself in the chest and bleeding out. That's not a typical. Right. You know, slit your wrist, um, hanging, things like that you might expect, but shooting yourself or, you know, gouging yourself in the chest and bleeding out over the course of three days is pretty gr gruesome way to go. Mm -hmm. Unsolved mysteries. Well, I just thought these were fascinating stories and there's so many of them. There's hundreds of them out there, to be fair. Um so I just thought, you know, that these would be an interesting little side note to the paranormal world because, you know, they they may or may not have some sort of paranormal connection, but they're definitely mysterious. And most of the time, people who like the paranormal tend to like this type of stuff. I know I do. Mm -hmm. You so. listen to a lot of those true crime podcasts. As I listen we've discussed. to some. I've listened to some. Um, I listen to a lot of history podcasts as well tons and tons of history podcasts and um i love uh, i love american history i'm particularly fond of pennsylvania history but i love american history and uh just find i find the human story and it's many different varieties endlessly fascinating well there you go if you uh if you want more episodes of ours even some of the out of the box ones that we've done over there as well with the 
questionable paranormal ties to it. <laughs> We've done a couple over there. So, um, what do we have now? Like 20. We've got a good many. That's true. I think true. we got 20 patron episodes now. Yeah. So it's only five bucks. Check it out. Um, we'll have links in the description and everything like that. And you can check those things out. Is there anything else we need to cover? No, I think we covered it all, except maybe that we'll come back to this topic if people show an interest and want to hear some more. I have this amazing story um, about green boots, and I have a whole bunch of other stories, including um, stories about a man who disappears and reappears throughout history. Like a time slip thing? He might have been. Not a time slip, maybe a time traveler. Okay. May want we'll to do a part two of this. Yeah, because I didn't even begin. I have like hundreds of pages of this stuff that I've collected over the years. Hmm. So what do you do? You hear something interesting and then just save it? Yeah, that's how um, the um, Pennsylvania's Lost Treasures started out. Um, my middle boy lo loved treasure stories. And so I had a box. And I also have a file in the computer. So if I find something online, I can lift a copy of it over with documentation and then go from there. But I would come across an article, a story, whatever, and I would either put it in the box or on the, the box online. And um, then the same happened with Totally Bizarre Pennsylvania. I actually have enough material for probably five Totally Bizarre Pennsylvanias. I have easily enough material for two or three more lost treasure books for Pennsylvania. And um, I would just look at the box one day and go, damn, there's a book in there, and start putting it together and as I'm putting it together and doing like last minute research, I would stumble on another story and I go, well, that story can wait for the second book. I'll just put this story instead. I used to drive my editors crazy because I would give them an outline and he would say to me, do you realize 60% of the book you sold me doesn't even exist? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but I put a better story in its place. And he's like, that's fine, Patty. That's, that's fine. As long as it's better. That's, that's good. That's, I mean, but I'm like, no, this is a better story. We, I really, you know, and he's like, will I ever see the one I was supposed to get? And I'm like, maybe. We'll see. Unless a better story comes along. Well, since you have them all backed up on your computer, you should print them all out and then put them in a box and then go bury it somewhere. And people have to find it. So. Go put it in one of Robert Lewis's caves or something. Actually, speaking of that, hang on. I want to make sure I get it right. The title. I want to just hang on. with. Bear with me a second. Um, I came across this amazing piece of Americana. And I would like to share it. There is a uh, website called The Weekly Holler, H-O-L-L-E-R, and he does these little podcasts, mm -hmm. like about Americana stuff, history and stuff like that. And um, I am absolutely enthralled. I'm reading his book right now, and it's phenomenal. And it's, it's a, a fictional piece based on a lot of Appalachian folklore. But anyhow, he did this amazing piece. Um, he had heard about these different you know, backwoodsmen from the 1700s and early 1800s who had um, traveled. They were Indian fighters and all this other stuff, right? And cleared the land and made it safe and what have you. And I have my my favorite figure from that time period and my least favorite figures from that time period and what have you. So when I saw this, it said 200-year-old mystery. And he had heard about this one guy in Ohio 
who um, had supposedly carved a message on a rock. So this gentleman who does the podcast sat out one day when he happened to be in that area and he found himself with a free day to go find it. He finds it and he actually takes you on the journey, walking down through the woods, finds this thing and he reads the message to you and you can actually read it off the he, he feel he videotapes the whole thing so you can actually read it too and um as a person who truly loves history i cannot imagine how thrilling it was to lay your hand on that 200 year old message and actually get to touch a piece of history in that way it's a great little video i highly recommend it and i and i love the stuff i've i've seen so far of his what's it called again the Weekly Holler is his website. Holler. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, pair of peeps. That's all the stories for today. And check out some of the other things. Check out Patty's books if you're interested in some of the things we talked about. Oh, yeah. I'm supposed to talk about those things sometimes. I forget. <laughs> Probably. Hey. Oh, yeah. Patty's an author. <laughs> well, yes. I don't think I've said that in the intro in a very long time. Maybe yeah, I should. I've written, I've written a bunch of books. Um, you can check them out on Amazon. I can't, I always forget to do that because like I I focus on giving the guys everybody that's listening a good story, more than anything, and I forget about that stuff for that moment. The storyteller in me is strong, and I love being able to share the stories and the history. And one of these days, maybe closer to Halloween or something, I'm just going to spend a couple episodes telling folk stories and legends and things of that nature so that they can keep on going on because they they're getting lost year by year and there's fewer and fewer of us storytellers left and stories are falling out of vogue and what have you but the beauty of these people and their history never should be out of vogue these were living human beings who have an amazing story much like some of the people from today will someday be a story too Cool. Well, there you go. That's a tease for how many months from now, but well, <laughs> it's okay. Couple. No big deal. I think you have a queue for months and months in advance at this point. And you got treasure boxes full of things now. That Now I know that. You know what? The funny part is, um, like, I never know what I'm going to do. I actually set out to set up another podcast for today. And it, I just sat down in front of the computer. It was like five o'clock in the morning. And I'm thinking I have one hour before I have to get ready to leave. And I'm going to try to get this thing ready. And the words that came out of my fingers instead of what I was going to do was... Um, I was going to do an episode on goblins and instead I wrote um, mysterious people. And the next thing I know, I'm putting this podcast together. Patty, those don't even resemble each other in the least. No, but that's where I'm, <laughs> that's where my brain, my subconscious, whatever the spirit, the energy, whatever took me. And I literally started to do an episode on goblins because I'd been working on something with Ryan Cavallini on goblins. And all of a sudden, I just looked down at the screen and instead I had typed mysterious people and I went, oh, well, I guess that's where we're headed today. And it doesn't phase me anymore because it's happened a thousand times in my life where what I've meant to do and what I ended up doing were two different things. And I have to tell you, I almost always believe that it's better the way 
God or the energy or the spirits or whatever want it to go because this turned out to be a beautiful episode. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, please let us know in the comments because we I like these episodes too. I like hearing human stories as well. I also like cryptids and things, but you know, humans are cool too. <laughs> I've been trying to tell the fairies and the goblin stories for weeks and every time I get near them I know there's something wrong, but there's not they're not ready yet because um something else pops out every time and people don't know this but i never know what we're doing either nope that's the, the funny thing i she doesn't even tell me i go so what are we doing and then we hit record and that's pretty much how it goes except tonight i lied to him and said i don't know and he goes oh i guess it's a story night <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't like any of these episodes it's, it's patty's fault. fault because i didn't get to go no, no i'm just kidding uh, no, actually, it is my fault because I, I choose them. We've got a weird partnership, that, but it works for us. Um, you know, you trust me to always bring really good material and do my best. And I trust you to do, after the stories are told, you polish it and make it finished and do all of your, your electronic magic on it. <laughs> and um, I never see the episodes until they're aired. And I have never once contacted you and said, Kenny, I can't believe you did that because I have a great deal of faith in your talent and your, um, your friendship. And I try always to give you as good as you give back. And I hope that that is how it's worked for you. It has. And I believe everybody sees that as well. I think that translates. Yeah, I think so too. I'm very fortunate to have you, my young friend. Thank you. Kimasabi. <laughs> Well, as you were feeling old tonight as you started this, I wanted to remind you, you're really young compared to me. You're very young. But never, ever lose that spirit and that spunk because I think if you do, then that's when you start to really get old. I keep jumping off cliffs and saying, yes, I'll do stupid shit like walk four miles and tell ghost stories in the cold <laughs> or some stupid dumb thing. But for the right reasons. Yeah, that'll be a good one, I think, uh, as long as you can do it. I there's always think, the segue i know i think maybe we should tape some of that one night that would be fun yeah maybe Just come along and see what we do okay well there you go everyone that was the longest possible outro ever but that's okay that's what you can we edit. do that's what you do you can edit so <laughs> uh, i'll leave it that's fine <laughs> all right parapetes we will catch you later